Also, I'd encourage you, if you want to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Um, so, you know, right smack the beginning of the New Testament. That's kind of where we're going to be this morning. Uh, I do apologize for the quality of my voice. Um, hopefully, uh, that's, you're lucky you're in the first service. I don't know what the second service is going to be like. So I'm going to start miming things at some point probably. Uh, but this morning we are at sort of a halfway point. We're sort of in the middle uh, of this series we're doing for Advent called Carols for the King. And just to, to remind you, in case maybe you were gone one of the weeks or maybe both of the weeks, the idea of this series is we're looking at um, sort of familiar Christmas songs, familiar Christmas carols, and kind of looking at really not just the song, but sort of the message behind the song. What's the what's the biblical story, so to speak, that really would lead to these songs being put together and being written? And in the first two weeks, we looked at Joy to the World, and then we looked at A Little Town of Bethlehem. And, and one of the things that helped us to kind of do that in this series is we know a lot about the background of both of those songs. We, we know a lot of data, a lot of information about the story that led to the song being written. But that's not true today. We're going to talk about O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it's, it's going to be different than those. It's sort of a different song than those because, to be honest, we don't know very much of the background of this song. Most of what we know is what I guess you could say speculation because we don't definitively know. We think that the words or the idea of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel dates back to the 8th century. And the reason we think that is because the form of the song, and I hope I pronounce this word right. I know so much about all of these music terms that I'm just going to impress you with my great music knowledge right now. Um, but it it's structured on what they call antiphons. And basically what an antiphon is, I don't know if you've ever wanted to sing a Gregorian chant in church, but probably... O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the original version of it most likely was a, a chant, and it was a chant that was kind of done in a, in a responsive way. So the way we sang the song this morning, I guess if we wanted to go back to the 8th century, and we'd have to sing it in Latin, which that might be a slight barrier for at least one or two of us in the room, is you'd probably have like this side of the room, you guys would do the verses. And then this side of the room in response would do what we would call the chorus. It was kind of meant to, to be this responsive thing. Now, we kind of get that from the structure of the song, but to be honest, we probably are not singing what they sang in the 8th century, again, because we don't sing in Latin. And even though we think it goes back to the 8th century, some other people say, well, we're pretty sure that the monks started singing it in the 12th century. But we don't even really know that for sure because the earliest Latin copy we have comes from Germany in 10 or 1710. So, you know, we don't really know. And, and it didn't actually enter into English, you know, an English version of it until the middle of the 19th century when a guy named John Mason Neal translated it. And other than the fact that we think the music that we use today one version says it was comes from France in the 1500s, and one says, well, it was, no, it was written sometime in the 1800s. We don't know anything else about the song. So it's a little hard to talk a lot about the song because I just shot my wad, and I've almost shot my voice. And so let's pray and be done, you know, kind of a thing. Thankfully, there are people that know a lot more about music than I do, and one of the things that they would tell you about this song is there's a tension in the song, and it was interesting being in the front row, you kind of listening to the volume both from the people here and the people behind me, 
um, the, the tension in this response kind of a thing. The, the melody, I am told, and I'm not really good at music, but the melody of the verses, and you may have heard it, you may have sensed it, kind of has a, a mournful sound to it. You, you might be able to say there was sort of, there's a little bit of a heavy-heartedness to the request. Because if you look at the verses, each verse really that you guys were singing, your side, is basically a prayer. And, and it's a little bit mournful. There, there's a little bit of a heaviness. And then you chorus people, you know, you kind of come up with rejoice. So you go from these mournful prayers and then the responses were to rejoice. And I don't know about you, but that could seem a little bit odd. Because there's a heaviness in the prayers. And so you get the sense in which the person, and we're just going to pick on you guys today, you're mourning, you're, you're grieving, there's something happening in your life that's heavy and hard and then you guys are just saying rejoice it's like how do you do that how do you rejoice when things are hard when there's midst of pain and struggle i want you to consider with me some of the words of of the verses real quick you know words that we sang but just to remind you of so captive mourns Lonely exile, gloomy clouds, death's dark shadow, earthly strife. I wouldn't say those words are what I would say would be positive or, or upbeat concepts. Whatever it is that led the anonymous writer, because we don't know who wrote the words originally in Latin, we don't know who that was, we get the sense, looking at the words, that the person who wrote the, this probably was writing from some measure of, there was something sitting on their chest. There was a sense of brokenness. See, brokenness wasn't an intellectual concept for this person. This was sort of their living reality. And I know we mentioned this last week, but I do think it bears repeating. The soil that produces Christmas, or maybe to think of it this way, the ground that our Christmas trees come from is not rich, fertile topsoil. Christmas doesn't come from that context. Everything's wonderful. Christmas really springs forth from what I guess you could call would be hard, barren dirt. And to most observers, if they saw the, 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 the place you were going to plant your Christmas tree farm, they would say, that's useless. Nothing can come from there. It, it's, it's not good. But into that context... We're told by the writer of this song, the song points us to, to rejoice. And I'm, I'm not sure that really makes a lot of sense in our 21st century mindset. You know, we can share, we, we probably do, and some of you I undoubtedly do, share with the anonymous writer some measure of heartache this morning. Some measure in which life's not the way you want it to be. So you and I might be able to sing, you know, the, the verses. This isn't good. This isn't right. I need something. We might be able to sing that. But in the midst of that, to sing rejoice, no, we'll sing the rejoice side when those prayers are fully and completely answered. But the song doesn't give us that option. The song says we're to rejoice that Emmanuel's coming, not that everything's done and fine. I'll be honest, I think it would be a whole lot easier for me to rejoice if everything was neatly done and put together. 
But that's not what the song says. It doesn't say rejoice afterwards. It says rejoice right now. Rejoice in this time of waiting. But how do you do that? Well, the reason I had you turn to Matthew chapter 1 is because I think the story in Matthew chapter 1 kind of provides for us sort of, hey, this is how you can rejoice in the midst of things that aren't easy, in the midst of things that aren't great and aren't perfect, in the midst, perhaps, of your heartache. And really, it's sort of a three-part answer because I think there's three things connected to the story that stick out. So answer number one would be this. Why would you rejoice in the midst of heartache? Because God has a complete plan. Okay, why rejoice? Because God has a complete plan. Now, I, I know earlier in, in the service when Aaron read Matthew chapter 1, he read the story starting in verse 18, and we are going to get to the story. But I want us to back up just for a minute to verse 1 and to verse 17. Because I think, in part, if you're going to understand the whole gospel of Matthew, you need to understand those verses. But if we're going to understand this story, I think verses 1 and 17 come to play. So verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 17. All the generations from Abraham to David were 14, excuse me, generations. And from David to the deportation to, the, to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Okay, now I want you to listen very carefully here because you're going to just be amazed at how profound this statement is. Okay, you right. You might want to write this down. You got your pen ready. Good. The book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, starts with a genealogy. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. But it starts with a genealogy. But because I didn't want to butcher and mispronounce a whole lot of names, what we did is we just read verse 1 and verse 17, which are kind of the bookends. The guts of the genealogy is verse 2 to verse 16. But verses 1 to 17 are bookends. And I think Matthew wrote those bookends because there's certain things out of all the genealogy. He wants us to see the whole genealogy. But there's a couple of things he wants us to zero in on. Okay, one of the things he wants us to zero in on based on, I think, verse 1 and verse 17 is he wants us to zoom in on Abraham. He really wants us to notice Abraham. And you say, why does he want us to notice Abraham? Well, I want you to think for a second about the Bible, the, the big book, as not a whole bunch of books combined together, but think about it as really, in this sense, one great big story. From a literary standpoint, if the Bible is one great big story, that would make Genesis 1 to 11, a lot of scholars will say Genesis 1 to 11 is kind of like the prologue. Okay? Um, some of you, I know, and I don't understand this, but members of my own family are into this. Some of you are Star Wars fans. Okay? And I guess a new movie is coming out on Friday. When you go to the movie, what's, what undoubtedly is going to happen is when the movie starts, there's going to be this narration going across the screen as the movie starts, right? That's the prologue. That's really like Genesis 1 to 11. Genesis 12 is when that, when that starts scrolling and the action actually starts. There's a sense in which the Bible in a sense, from a narrative standpoint, starts with Abraham being introduced in Genesis 12. Now, when Abraham's introduced in Genesis 12, we already know that life at times is going to be hard and tricky. That was where 
Abraham and Sarah were, they were facing some things that weren't easy in life. They, they were dealing with some things. But then in Genesis 12, God comes on the scene, and we're going to look at this starting in February. We're going to take some time and go through the life of Abraham. But God comes on the scene, and God promises, Abraham, things are going to be different. But he doesn't just say things are going to be different. Really what he says is they're going to be better. And he says they're going to be better ultimately because, Abraham, I'm going to have this, the, the technical word would be seed, but we get kind of a little uncomfortable talking about seed in a biological sense sometimes when you're talking about human seed, so we're going to use the word offspring most likely. This offspring is going to come. And we know as the story of the Bible unfolds, that offspring is Jesus. So we think about Abraham, he's drawing attention to Abraham to say, guess what, God has this plan. And he's kind of kicking it off. Second thing he wants, Matthew wants us to notice, I think is he wants us to notice David. Now David lived roughly a thousand, more than 1,100-ish years or so, roughly, after Abraham. And David was experiencing some of what God had promised. Not all, not in completion, but David was living in the outflow, in the expression of the plan of God. Not only was that true, but God decided, God shared with David a little more of the plan. And that little more of the plan, again, pointed, guess who? To Jesus. It took us right to Jesus again, that there's going to be a son. And it's kind of pointing in that direction. That's all positive. That's all good. God's got a plan, and here it's unfolding, and we're seeing it. And then I think he wants us to notice the Babylonian exile, the, the deportation into Babylon when in, seven, or in, in 722 the northern troops, the northern tribes got taken in, by the Assyrians, and then in 586 B.C., the southern troops, Judah, they got taken to Babylon. And when that happened, I, I think you could say it probably seemed like God's plan had failed. The people that were supposed to be in the promised land were no more in the land. They were all gone. If you think about this in terms of the biblical story, and if you and I were living in 586 B.C. and we were being taken into exile, we'd probably be going... This isn't good. There probably would have been a measure of heartache, a measure of desperation, a measure of personal pain. Just a, an, almost like the air being sucked out of your lungs kind of a thing. Now, I don't know because I can't, I, don't, I didn't ask the ushers to check everybody's birth certificate on the way in the door. But I don't know if there's anybody in the room right now that was alive on December the 7th, 1941. I know in the second service there should be, but I don't know if there is anybody right now. But what was it like that day when people heard the news? Just kind of, <gasps> or for you and I, most of us in the room, maybe not everybody, but a vast majority of us in the room were alive on September the 11th, 2001. And what did it feel like when you heard that? When you heard what was going on? I think that's kind of a sense of what the people would have felt like. But it, it, it didn't go away. It, it stayed with them. And not only did it stay with them, when the people came back, when, they, when, when, when the Medes and Persians came and took over the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians' idea was send people back. 
So they go back to the land, but now they are under the oppression of the Romans. The sense of despair, I think, was still present. And this idea that God has a plan, eh, I don't know that he has a plan because this really isn't the life I was hoping I was going to have. But notice Matthew also wants us to notice Jesus. And there's a sense in which by bringing up Jesus after talking about this deportation thing, by mentioning that, it's as if to say, folks, we need to understand that even though life can feel like we've been deported, that it can feel like we're living under oppression. This one who was promised to Abraham, this one who was promised to David, he's here, and that means God's plan is in play. In essence, Matthew is telling us God's plan has been complete from day one. And we're just at a point where more of it's being revealed, more of it's going to be expressed. Part of the reason why we can rejoice in the midst of our struggle and in the midst of our heartache is because Emmanuel is coming. And Emmanuel will bring completion to the plan of God. We rejoice because of the one who's coming. He's going to make God's complete plan play out. Now please know this fact. Life in this time of Advent, life in this time of anticipative waiting. And in one sense, we're, we're in the season of Advent on a church calendar. But folks, we're also in a life of Advent, anticipatively waiting. But we need to understand life at that point can bring with it twists and turns. And honestly, those twists and turns can leave us wondering, does God still have a plan? We need to rejoice that He does, but life sometimes makes it really hard for us to believe He does. So why do you say that? Well, look with me at the story. Let's jump into where the story starts in verses 18 and 19. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, was unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, I don't know what your heartache is. But I think based on those two verses, you and I can get some idea of what might be Joseph's heartache. What might be the thing that's weighing on his chest, so to speak, making it hard for him to believe. Prior to this, prior to verse 18, sort of between verse 17 and verse 18, something took place. Most likely, Joseph's parents and Mary's parents got together and said, our kids are going to get married. Now, I'll be honest, when, I just, when we just had three sons, arranged marriages didn't seem that smart. But once we had a daughter, I thought arranged marriages were the smartest thing ever invented. So if there is a boy that wants to come anywhere near my daughter, watch out. <laughs> or maybe I should say pay up, because that's probably what took place in this thing is Mary's parents probably gave Joseph's parents some money, kind of a thing, and this marriage was arranged. And so Joseph's kind of looking at his life. He's like, I guess this is who I'm going to marry. And so he probably started making all those kinds of plans. This is what life's going to look like. This is how my life's going to go, all those things. But he had to wait. It was kind of, he was anticipating this is how life's going to go, but he had to wait because in that culture, the marriage would be arranged. 
but you had to wait usually a year. So he's dreaming about what my life's going to be, but he's got to wait. And in that waiting period, all of a sudden, his fiancée, she starts to put on a few pounds. But she's not putting it on all over. She's putting it all on right here. She's pregnant. Now, I don't know what everybody in Nazareth was thinking at that point, but I'm pretty sure what Joseph was thinking. I didn't have anything to do with that. And all of a sudden, he found himself in a situation he never thought he'd be in. His, what he thought life was going to be, what he thought God was laying out for his life, all of a sudden was gone and changed. What does he do? Please understand, the story of Joseph where life twists and turns is really where the story of Christmas comes from. You and I might find ourselves where we don't want to be. And when that happens, that may cause us to question a lot of things, including God. Somehow though, in the midst of our questions, in the midst of our despair, in the midst of what probably may seem in your life like the absence of God, or maybe it feels like the cruel ignorance of God. He's just cruelly ignoring you. Or maybe worse, the heartache in your life feels like the punishment of God. What Joseph maybe didn't quite get yet, what you and I may not quite get yet, even in the midst of all of our questions, even in the midst of that angst, that hurt, God's plan is still present. And God's plan is still active. And if His plan is present and active, we can still rejoice, even in our heartache. I'm not saying it's easy, but the song points us there, and the song points us there because I think that's where Matthew's pointing us to. Answer number two, why can I rejoice when I'm brokenhearted? In part because God is, has a complete plan, but more significantly maybe adding to that is because God gives life. God gives life. I, I, I've wondered, partly because for the last, um, wow, I'm starting to feel old now. For about the last 29 or 30 Christmases, 31 Christmases, maybe 32 Christmases, I've been asked to stand up in something in front of people to talk about Christmas. So I've thought about Joseph a number of times. And I've thought, his head, I mean, if all of a sudden your fiance shows up and she's pregnant and you have nothing to do with it, that's going to make your head spin. But as much as his head was spinning at that point, I think the next scene of the story probably took him to a whole different level of spinning. I mean, look at verses 20 and 21. I mean, the story continues. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay. Now, at different times in the Bible, not very often, but at different times, God would speak to people through their dreams or, or in their dreams. So presumably, Joseph, trying to, you know, he's kind of thinking, I guess this is what I've got to do. And so he goes, you know, I'm going to sleep on it kind of a thing. He goes to bed, and as he goes to bed and falls asleep, God sends an angel to say, hey, Joseph, God's working. I don't know if Joseph had ever had Mexican food before, but he's probably thinking, my Mexican food's repeating on me, and I'm having weird dreams. Well, what are you talking about? Why do you say, Lloyd, why do you say the angel saying God's working? Notice how Joseph is spoken to. How is he referred to? Joseph what? Son of David. Now he was of the lineage and house of David. He was a descendant of the king. But his life was far from any palace kind of a living. But by referring to him, Joseph, son of David, he's taking Joseph back to the fact that God has a plan. And specifically what the angel wants to highlight the plan part at this level is Joseph, the plan I want you to know is that God gives life. God gives life. I want you to see that, Joseph. Don't miss that. Look at how verse 21 ends. It ends by what? He will save his people from their sins. Joseph probably understood some things about sin, maybe in a bigger way than you and I often do. Growing up in Israel, growing up in that context, what they would do, he, he probably knew, hey, sin's an issue. He, he probably went to what we would, you know, we court say they, they didn't have Sunday school, they had Sabbath school kind of a thing. So he probably had heard about the sacrifices and, and the Passover. And, and all of those were a pretty clear reminder that sin is dramatically connected to death. And, and the, you know, the repetitious nature of all those sacrifices and, and the different yearly festivals and all of those things kind of underlined that sin was an issue. And it was an issue that the people faced. It was on them, so to speak, but they couldn't fix it. And yet here's the thing, and I hope Joseph knew this, but maybe Joseph also had heard that a long time before, God had said, hey, I'm going to deal with that sin issue. I'm going to solve that problem. Psalm 130. Verses 7 and 8 say this. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is what? Plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Synonym for the word sin. Instead of people knowing the penalty of death for their sins, Joseph, guess what? Jesus is going to save people from their sins. Jesus is going to give life to people who deserve death. He's going to come and do that. The prayer of verse 1 of the song asks these questions, or asks this, O come, O come, Emmanuel. 
and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appeared. In one sense, that prayer is basically saying, Help! We have a problem. We're isolated and lonely and we've got it. We're ransomed. We're, we're, we're in captivity. Help us. Get us out of here. Help. Life's not what I want. I, I need a solution. And because God has a plan, because that plan involves God giving life, we can respond to the prayer of verse 1 with the chorus and sing out, Rejoice, rejoice! Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. He's coming. See, you and I can rejoice even in lonely exile. Why? Because the God who's coming, the God who's going to show up, brings life. He makes it possible for dead people like you and me to be alive. His plan is unfolding. So how do you get in on that life? Look back with me to verse 21 real quickly of the story in Matthew 1. How, if he gives the life, how do I get it? Verse 21 she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In, in verse 21, God is asking Joseph to connect his life to Jesus. This, this act of naming, I want you to name him. Act of naming is, is a statement of, ex, of acceptance. It's an expression of connection. It is basically taking Joseph and Jesus and through that naming thing, making them part of the same family by adoption. See, the way you and I get the life that God offers is by being connected to Jesus. By accepting the Lord Jesus as your Savior. In very simple terms, when the Bible defines the Gospel, in 1 Corinthians 15, what it says is, is that Jesus died on the cross according to the Scriptures for our sins and was buried. And He rose again according to the Scriptures and appeared to Cephas and the Twelve and then to more than 500 at one time. That's the historic statement of that's what the Gospel is. But for you and I to benefit from what Jesus did on the cross, it's not enough for us to be able to say, well, I know in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what it says. No, for us to benefit from it, we have to be connected to Jesus. We have to receive Him as our Savior. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you done that? It's really easy for us to say those kinds of words in church and then just kind of move on. But I don't want you to rush past this thing. I don't want you to not take a moment in that sense and look in the mirror and really ask the question, have I truly accepted the Lord Jesus? The plan of God is an amazing thing. This thing that God wants to give life is an amazing thing. But for you and I to get that, we need to trust Christ. That's not trivial. That's not insignificant. And I do want you, whether it's this moment or whether it's later today, really ask that question. 
have I? The story continues because God doesn't just give us life. There's more to it. And the third answer to the question that kind of builds off of once I'm connected to him, third answer to the question is God gives himself. You trust Christ, not only do you just trust him, but you get God. Verses 22 and 23 of the story. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew connected the birth announcement of Jesus to a sign that had been offered to King Ahaz back in Isaiah 7. Ahaz chose not to trust the Lord. So Isaiah, inspired by the Lord, told Ahaz, Ahaz, a baby's going to be born to a woman who's a virgin. And that baby is going to be called Emmanuel. And this child is going to be a sign, Ahaz, that though you don't trust God and his plan, the Lord's plan's going to happen. And the reason God's plan's going to happen is why? Because God comes to be with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Real quickly, I just want you to look with me at the opening line of each verse of the song. Okay? O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, thou day spring. O come, thou wisdom. O come, desire of nations. Each one of those prayers is what? Asking for God to come. All of those things, day spring, wisdom, desire of nations, all of those are references to things of God in the Old Testament, to the person of God. The answer to our prayers, the answer to our heartache, to all those things, is not God waving some magic wand doing something. The answer to our lives is found in God being with us. God being present. And Matthew is telling us, guess what? In Jesus, we get God here with us. And Matthew to Matthew, this is a huge idea. If you turn really quickly to the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is huge. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is huge. Okay, this sermon could get a whole lot longer because of all those things, but I want you to notice this. How does he end? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The gospel begins and ends with the promise, God is with us. Why would I rejoice? Because God is with me. Now, now to be precise, okay, I believe the Lord Jesus is with us right now. Now, he's not with us in the same way that Revelation 21 and 22 describe. I get that. But he is here. And I want you to understand, if you have trusted the Lord Jesus as your Savior, why we talk about that. If you've trusted the Lord Jesus as your Savior, then one of the things we believe the Bible teaches is that God the Father and God the Son send God the Holy Spirit to be a part of your life so that the very much the presence of Jesus is mediated into your life through the Spirit of God. 
He is present with us right now. Which means in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our heartaches, in the midst of all those things, He is present. We are not alone in our heartache. The Holy Spirit's with us. Now I'll be honest, folks, that does not mean it's easy for you and I to sense His presence. That doesn't mean it's easy for you and I to always feel that. But it doesn't change the fact that He's present. And what I think all of us need to understand is if the Spirit of God is present, He can do a work in us. And the work He does in us might simply allow us to endure our heartache. But He also might allow us actually to triumph over our heartache. To where we could become what the book of Revelation in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 describe as overcomers. And all of that is possible not because you and I are so smart or you and I are so spiritual. It's because He is present. We can rejoice because Emmanuel has come the first time and now we wait for Him to come the second time. Let me wrap this up. What makes you rejoice? What makes you rejoice? For many of us, whether we are fans of the A-team or not, our rejoicing is often tied to plans coming together, right? Now, I'm not an A-team expert, but from my memory, Hannibal Smith, and I do not endorse necessarily smoking cigars, please, I'm not endorsing that, but at the end of every show, he'd say, I love it when a plan comes together and he'd light his cigar. How many of us are exactly like that? We'll rejoice when the plan, when it's done and it's all together. But the point of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and really I think the point of Matthew's Gospel, the story, isn't that you and I rejoice in a plan. It's that you and I rejoice in a person. That you and I can rejoice right now we, because Emmanuel comes to be with us. The one who comes to be with us is the one who comes to give life. And the one who comes to be with us is the one who will complete the plan we need. My prayer of the morning for us is that this song and this biblical story moves us to desire Emmanuel more than a plan. May we know the true joy of Christmas. May we know Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, there are so many things that are true about you that we miss. Lord, I am grateful to you that you never trivialize the heartache that we have. And it breaks your heart in that sense when our hearts are broken. And you want us to know fullness and wholeness in life. And all of that is possible not because plans go out the way we want them to. But because Jesus is present. Lord, I pray in the midst of all that is going on, you would help us to see you still have a plan 
And a huge part of that plan is giving us life. But you do all of those things so that we can be with you and that we, you can be with us. Lord, I pray this Christmas you would help us to see how amazing you are. And I pray the desire of our hearts would not be for our plans to go a certain way, but that it would be that we would know Emmanuel, God with us. The only reason we have Christmas and the only reason we can celebrate is because of that. And I pray today we would rejoice in what we have in Christ. In the very precious and powerful name of the Lord Jesus, of Emmanuel, God with us, we pray. Amen.